Welcome to this episode of the Homegrown Podcast, brought to you by the Harris County AgriLife Extension Horticulture Department. I'm Brandi Keller, your residential horticulture agent, but I am not your host for today. <laughs> your host is someone new. Uh, I would like to welcome a new addition to uh, our extension family, Shannon Sullivan. She is uh, an assistant agent uh, with the Ag Natural Resources Department. So welcome, Shannon. Uh, tell us just a, a little bit about yourself, and then I'll go ahead and uh, let you introduce your guest today. Yeah. Um, hello, everybody, and thank you, Brandy, for the introduction. So I am the new assistant agent in Harris County. My focus is agricultural, natural resources, and horticulture. And today, my guest star is Miss Ashley Pellerin James. So I'm going to give a little brief introduction for Ashley. So she has a bachelor's degree from Tuskegee and a master's in animal science from Tennessee State University. Also a graduate cert certificate in extension education from Texas A&M University. She is currently working on a PhD in ag leadership, education and communication and currently she works as an extension program specialist in agricultural and natural resources at Prairie View A&M. A lot of the work she focuses on is conducting meetings targeted at limited resource producers for animal health and nutrition. Additionally to that, she supports research-based programs in the area of livestock and forage management to increase profit for small acreage landowners. So good morning, Ashley. Hey, good morning, Shannon. Thank you for having me course. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing great this morning and I'm excited for what we have in store today. So a Absolutely. lot of what, yeah, so a lot of what we're going to be talking about today is Ashley's background working with livestock and forage management. So whenever you're ready, Ashley, I'm go ahead and ask you some questions today. I'm as ready as I'm going to be this morning. I've had my coffee, so let's get after it. <laughs> Perfect. All right, Ashley, can you tell listeners a little bit more about what you do for your professional career and how exactly you work with the International Goat Research Center at Prairie View A&M? Uh, absolutely. So professionally, as you mentioned, I'm an extension program specialist um, in the area of livestock management. I assist agents in the counties uh, who work with Prairie View A&M University's Cooperative Extension Program. Uh, put on educational programs. Uh, we work hand in hand with AgriLife as uh, we're always good partners and we also share office space in the uh, counties. But um, to kind of subsidize that, we work with the International Goat Research Center and the researchers that um, are housed there to ensure that we are uh, putting out information that's relevant to goat producers, um, as well as other species of livestock. We do have cattle on our farm as well, and we're working on getting back poultry and uh, maybe eventually swine. So mm -hmm. with the Goat Research Center, we really just kind of um, focus on pushing out new and innovative um, ideas for goat producers. All right. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Prairie View's goals to work with small acreage landowners and um, more about the Goat Research Center? Right. So um, uh, as you know, or you may not know, Texas has the largest number of head of goats in the U.S. 
Um, to date, I just talked with somebody who worked with the ag census. And for a while, Texas is the only place that they actually take numbers from, numerical data from, because we have the largest data set that they can run information on. So um, with that, we want to make sure that the animals that we produce here, whether you are raising them on, you know, just a few on five acres or raising hundreds on thousands of acres, that you are putting forth the best effort in caring for your animals, managing the land, and also um, putting together good business practices. So um, our goals are really to increase the profits or the profit margin for um, small acreage landowners and mm -hmm. producers. Uh, with Prairie View, we actually kind of work more so with uh, limited resource producers and uh, historically underserved. And limited resource could be anybody. That could be if you're lacking financial resources, lacking um, land resources, management resources. We really try to help people, um, you know, find out where they're lacking and find out how they can make the best of their situation until they can improve it. Yeah. Uh, so working with these limited resource landowners. So you mentioned earlier about some workshops that you guys host. Would that incorporate or those workshops incorporate with the small and limited landowners? Absolutely. Um, you know, we do target that population, but anybody is welcome to come to our programs. Um, we we just kind of capped off our, our goat workshop. We have one coming up on uh, February 4th and we just reached capacity with that. So we now have a wait waiting list. But um, we have people coming from all over and including outside of the state of Texas. So whoever is willing to receive help from us, we're willing to put forth the effort to um, get them the help that they need. Perfect. All right. So I'm kind of interested in discussing further about the different varieties of goats that Prairie View a is working with. So can yeah. you tell me um, about some of the experiments you guys have going on out there? We have a lot of research projects that are going on. A lot of them, we have um, a reproductive, we actually have two reproductive physiologists on staff. And we uh, also have a dairy goat specialist. So Scott Horner has been with the Prairie View Goat Research Center um, for over 30 years. And uh, he is well known in the dairy goat industry. Most of our herd is comprised of dairy goat. We have um, Nubians and don't alpines. Um, but we also have meat goats. We also have some Spanish and some boar goats as well. And looking to kind of grow and diversify the things that are going on on campus. So a lot of our research deals with reproduction. Uh, as you know, with a lot of meat and breeding species, if they don't reproduce, then, you know, they're, they're kind of more of like a lawn ornament. So you want them to maintain themselves and to be able to reproduce. So understanding how that works and how we can capitalize and maximize um, nutrition management to support reproduction as well as uh, reproductive practices such as artificial insemination. And, um, you know, just I think they're using, you know, the ultrasound for different um, techniques for looking at carcass quality, for looking at pregnancies um, and other types of areas. So I will say I don't deal a lot with the research. I just take what they uh, give me and I try to make it palatable to producers. That's my job as an extension agent is to take that uh, high level research and make it matter to producers. Because when producers come to us, you know, in extension, they're like, how am I going to make money off of this? All that talk and that jargon is nice, but how am I going to make money? 
So that's what our job is. And that's what I enjoy doing. And that's how, you know, Extension and the GOAT Center work together. Yeah. And that that work is always appreciated to have that person to kind of um, communicate well between, like you said, the researcher and the producer. Uh, So you mentioned a couple different kinds of goats. You mentioned the Nubians, Alpines, and boar goats. And um, the reproductibility of these goats, you said, varies drastically. Uh, I was wondering if you could further elaborate on the mothering abilities of these different kinds of goats. Well, um, there's there's some research about the mothering abilities of based on breeds. Some breeds are a little bit more um, more nurturing than others. When I did my research in graduate school, we did see that um, the boar goats were a little less nurturing just by nature. Uh, well, a little less nurturing, but then the dairy goats, because they have kind of that that dairy component or the dairy component. With the mothering abilities, I think that really depends on the different types of animals. Um, you know, animals are just like people. So they have, uh, their abilities vary. So, you know, it's not one thing to say that boars are poor motherers. It's just that some animals just do a little bit better job of maintaining the animals that they give birth to um, and making sure that they're feeding them, they're not smushing them, and they're caring for them uh, after they are born. Right. And I know uh, boar goats specifically, they are the most sought after meat goat. And like you were saying, too, they they don't necessarily have the best mothering ability, which is kind of one of their faults. So um, were some of the yeah. experiments being done at well, Prairie View? Oh, oh, yeah. Go, go ahead. ahead. <laughs> well, I would say, sorry, You're I would good. say with that, um, we just have to remember that when boar goats came here in the 90s, Um, They were kind of like a hot commodity and it wasn't that many of them. And they were all bred to Spanish, Spanish does or, you know, they were kind of bred into the Spanish, Spanish breed. But eventually they like the look of the boar because it reminds us kind of like little cattle. They're very um, they have a, you know, very deep chest. They're wide. They're stout. And a lot of people bred boar goats for a look and not for their ability to survive and reproduce. Mm-hmm. So we will notice that boar goats are are really good at showing uh, showing off their carcass, whereas your dairy goats, they're taller, they're really thin. A lot of people just um, are not a fan of the look, but their ability to maintain themselves and reproduce um, is really key. If you are entering into any kind of livestock operation, you want your animal to be able to maintain itself and reproduce with you having to do as little intervention as possible because that's going to save you on the back end. So with boars, I think they were bred for a look versus reliability or sustainability, Mm -hmm. Um, which is fine. That means they just have their own, you know, to each his own. Right. I completely agree. Um, So the next question I want to ask are for a small acreage landowner, what would some of the benefits be? raising goats compared to other grazing species for meat purposes um, sure. or dairy. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, a lot of small acreage producers, when we, you know, while we're in school and we're learning about animal science, we, we learn like the animal unit number as kind of like the standard number per acre. So that's a thousand pounds of animal per acre. Um, but it's with the caveat that you have enough forage to feed that animal. Mm-hmm. So really, the um, the benefit of small acreage to small acreage producers is that goats are 
um, browsers versus grazers. So they prefer to eat grass that is above their knees. So we say about three to four inches. If you have a really wooded area, they kind of thrive there. Um, they'll eat a lot of your brushy species. Um, if you have a lot of area to kind of clear around fencing, they really like that um, that taller grass that cattle do not enjoy. Um, also, they're easier to handle. So you can get some kids out there to help manage and wrangle up your goats. Whereas if you have a cow or a large cow, unless you kind of have like a Dexter, there's, um, you know, the management needs would really should really be done by an adult. Um, you really wouldn't send uh, a young child out to try to uh, catch a cow by themselves. So a lot of it goes into management, feasibility, their the ability to move them around. So if you only have five acres, you do want to rotate them. You can rotate them a lot easier uh, on smaller acreage because you can divide that up. Um, you know, on one acre, if you're have lush pastures, you can put five to eight goats in one acre. Um, whereas if you're out west, you probably don't want to put that many goats. Uh, it just depends on your pasture. But there's a lot of benefits uh, for small acreage producers. Right. I completely agree. Um, I kind of want to know your thoughts on multi-species grazing too, like using goats alongside with uh, cows and or as well as sheep too. Yeah, I actually love it. I think it's a really good way um, for both species, if you're doing cows and goats, to really um, help with parasite management. Um, in both species, in the cow and the goat specifically, they both carry a parasite called the Haemunchus contortus, or also called the barber pole worm. Mm -hmm. And in goats especially, it is um, financially devastating. Um, that's why you hear a lot of goats, goat owners talk about parasite management. We're running out of drugs or we're, I'm able to use this. I can't. I have to use it in a concoction. Um, you know, there's parasitic resistance where you're not able to use the drugs or the, um, you know, the dewormers that you were able to use because they're just not effective anymore. Those parasites have become immune or tolerant to those uh, things. And that can be detrimental if you have an illness that no drugs work on. So that's kind of one of the issues within the goat industry um, that kind of has a hold on everybody nationwide. Um, the good thing about co-grazing is that one, goats are browsers and cattle are grazers. So your goats mm -hmm. will eat the higher part of the grass and then you can follow that with your cows and they'll eat the lower part. So you'll get your goats off of pastures before they eat too low into the ground and pick up parasites. Also, you experience something called like a vacuum effect where the haemunchus uh, contortus that the goats take in, the haemunchus contortus that is contaminated by the cattle, then when they uh, when they poop out, the, they don't poop out the eggs. So it's kind of like they're cleaning the field naturally. And same thing, vice versa. When the cattle eat after the goats, they are taking in those um, barber pole eggs from the uh, and larva from the pasture, and they're not coming out on the back end. So we call that kind of the vacuum effect. So you're kind of, in essence, cleaning your pastures. Right. And um, that brings up another point I had, but aren't some goat species more parasite resistant than others? Yeah, they, they have some that are more, and I won't, 
I don't generally use the word resistant. I say tolerant because mm-hmm. um, there is a difference between tolerance and resistance. Um, if they are parasite tolerant, then they are your uh, like we like to call them typhoid Mary. That means they can have a lot of parasites in them and they'll be shedding a lot of parasite eggs into your pasture. But they won't uh, but they won't show signs of illness. So it's like they are tolerating those parasites versus resistance where they are just not picking up or getting infested by those uh, by those parasites. So there are some who are uh, who have some mild resistance, um, but there are probably many more who are tolerant or becoming tolerant of um, parasites. Right. Um All right. So do you know of any indirect benefits as a result of a small acreage landowner raising goats, maybe that they are not aware of? Um, Indirect benefits can can vary. A lot of people find it therapeutic to work out on a farm uh, with goats. Um, If you have dairy goats, then, um, you know, the opportunity for not just meat production or milk production, but also byproducts such as lotions, oils, soaps. and, you know, ice cream, dairy products, all of those can be um, additional benefits. Again, if you raise the dairy goats, you know, there's a big, uh, you have to be concerned about what it takes to start a dairy operation and maintain that. But there are more opportunities for you to be able to recoup some of that money by using some, uh, by by creating byproducts such as those uh, soaps and uh, goat milk pops, which are delicious, by the way. Um, I've never tried them. <laughs> oh my good, God, though. girl, you are missing <laughs> out. Girl, okay, so after this, I'm gonna get you hooked up with some uh, goat milk pops. I'm counting they on are it. the best. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, girl, get you some. Sure. My next question is so I know most of goat meat in Texas specifically, or maybe the United States, is exported, but mm-hmm. Who are the main consumers of goat meat in Texas? Um, so in Texas, uh, the main consumers of goat meat are um, ethnic populations who are already used to consuming goat in their native um, in their native areas. So a lot of um, Hispanic or Mexican uh, clientele, Latin Americans, they consume goat. African populations, um, Muslim populations. Uh, consume goat meat as well. Some of them have traditional slaughters, but um, the consumption of goat meat is still there. And uh, because we are increasing in diversity within Texas and even beyond just Houston and the other larger metropolitan areas, some of our smaller towns are starting to see booms in ethnic diversity Mm -hmm. um, and the desire for that goat meat. So uh, it's good that we produce a lot of it. I will also say that there's a word called acculturation, which Mm -hmm. means when other cultures adopt the practices of another culture that is within their area. So I think, um, you know, Texas born, U.S. born citizens are now being more open and exposed to goat meat as another source of protein. So, um, you know, that's starting to ramp up as well. It's no longer solely just this cluster of people, it's becoming um, a lot more desired and desirable uh, across the state. 
Yeah. And I think I'm really glad that that's happening, though, too, because I know, especially growing up for me, there's a lot of stigma behind eating goat meat. Like, it wasn't very mm-hmm. traditional in my family to want to eat that. Right. Well, I'm glad that there's becoming more of a push for that. Um, can you just, I don't know, for people listening, could you describe the flavor of what goat meat tastes like compared to another sort of protein? Um. I would say it has kind of a gamey taste, um, but it really depends on how you cook it and um, what form you're eating it in. You know, goat ribs to me taste a little more gamey. They're not going to taste like beef or pork ribs. Um, They'll be a little bit tougher and just not as much meat. Uh, Goats are a very lean animal, so there's not a lot of like marbling that you would see in the in as you would see in like the, the beef and the pork. So they're they're kind of a lean animal, so you don't expect to bite into something real juicy. But uh, if seasoned well, it can be very flavorful. Um, stewed goat to me tastes more like um, kind of like a a beef stew uh, because it's been sitting in there marinating. Um, and if you get a young goat like cabrito or something that's like a, under a year old, oh, just very tender, very tender, very good. The older it gets, um, and if the older it gets, they they kind of develop musk glands and that deposits that scent into mm-hmm. the meat and then it can kind of get very musky. But there are some cultures that desire that. Um, so I'm not a fan of it, but I don't yuck anybody's yum. So if they, <laughs> if they like it, let's go with it. Yeah. Um, and you said cabrito is the term for a young goat. Yes, it's uh, the Spanish version that they use. Uh, you'll hear it a lot down in, in like South Texas and Mexico, cabrito. Mm-hmm. And then I saw the term also, it's Chevon or Chevon. Chevon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that for an older goat? Not sure. I've always used it as just kind of like a general goat like Chevon. But I'm okay. sure there is a, <laughs> I'm sure there is a specific age range for that. I'm right. just not sure. I'm also curious about milk and cheeses, the flavor profile of those as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what um, would you say it compares to? It's very creamy. So I like, um, like when you get the, when I'm fancy and do a charcuterie board, I generally mm-hmm. tend to add goat cheese on there. To me, it just has a little bit more um, fat content in the milk. So it just makes it very um, creamy, a little thicker. Um the taste is a little bit different, but I would kind of compare it to kind of some of your stronger, you know, your more stronger smelling cheeses. You know, cheeses kind of range right. in, in smell, but um, I've had a variety of goat cheeses and they have a lot that have infused flavors and, oh, they just run the gauntlet. I'm going to have so to give you- it a try sometime. <laughs> I've always no, been scared we're have to. to get you down here to Prairie View and <laughs> get you a little sample set up. I know. I need a charcuterie board. The whole thing. <laughs> I'm down for a charcuterie board uh, moment. <laughs> All right. Um, so my next question is, what's one piece of advice you'd give to someone starting out as a new goat producer? Oh, let's see. One piece of advice that I could give to a new goat producer is to shadow another goat producer first. Mm-hmm. Um, the best way to understand what you're getting into is to see somebody who's already gotten into it and 
um, experience the the ups and downs of um, managing goats, maintaining goats. Um, we always tell everybody, you know, the number of animals that you can put on your land depends on the layout of your land. You know, so have you had those talks with NRCS and the FSA office? Have you actually gotten a land assessment done? Um, you know, have you looked at your budget? Have you looked at all the things that it would take to go into starting a new operation? And mm-hmm. sometimes you don't know what you don't know. But if you go to somebody who's done it before or who, who's gone through that process, then they can kind of help you say, well, this is how you start off. This is what you should do. This is what didn't work. This is what did work. Um, the, the best advice can come from those who are with who are already doing what you want to do. I completely agree. And uh, based on your personal knowledge and experience, you know, do you have an estimate of how long it would take for a goat herd to become profitable for a small acreage landowner? I generally don't put a time frame to that just because it really just depends on where they're starting. Um, right. Because say you have somebody who has to, you know, do a lot to prepare the land, then they're going to start off at a deficit versus somebody who was given beautiful green pastures already pre-partitioned out. Fences are great. They already have goat fencing. You know, it's not going to take them as long to get to a certain profit margin. So um, all of that really depends on how you set up your business plans, looking at what goes, you know, what goes into it and what you're getting out of it or getting in return. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you think some of the biggest challenges are that are facing the goat industry right now? Uh, the main one is uh, parasite management. Mm-hmm. Um, again, if you don't have any animals to graze or to eat or reproduce, then, you know, if they're taken out by parasites before they have the ability to do either one of those, then you really are um, not a producer. You're more so just kind of like a uh, a final home for, for, for goats and a, a feast day for, for parasites. So we really want people to understand parasite management and also what that looks like um, in different conditions in your region. Um, in Texas, we can go from severe drought to very rain heavy areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so we run the gauntlet. So understanding management in your area um, is very important Um uh, to be able to manage parasites, to manage your animals. So I would say parasite management first, then also, um, you know, management at different extremes of weather, be it drought or flooding situations. Because uh, an area in rainy East Texas and your management of that land is going to look completely different from West Texas. Vastly different. Vastly different. (laughs) Vastly different. (laughs) Yeah. And I think, what do you think some best management practices are in regards to, you know, maybe making sure that you stay on top of uh, parasite treatment, deworming and stuff like that? All right. So I always encourage everybody to get educated, um, which means come to extension programs or, or go to, um, you know, just join local community based organizations and, um try to learn from the experts. There's a lot of things out on the internet and everybody has access to the internet, but there's also a lot of conflicting information. Um, And just ensuring that um, 
your management style fits your budget and your ability to to practice your you practice within your operation. Um, as far as parasite management goes, a lot of the new research studies have shown that you really need to treat animals as needed. So long gone are kind of the days where you are um, treating the whole herd at a consistent time. There is a time and a place for that, but a lot since we are seeing all this resistance with um, dewormers and and other treatment drugs, then we want to make sure that those are available to those who need it. So treating them on a specified basis, so giving a we call it a famancha, which is where you look at the mucous membrane of the eyes to see if they're experiencing some anemia within the goats. If you see that, you know, you you have a herd of 50 and you look at 10 of your goats or 20 of your goats and you see that there's only about five that are having issues, then it's probably not a problem with a lot of your herd. So right. you want to just treat the ones who have the anemia problem and let the other ones be. That way, the next time you treat them, if they do have an issue, then you are uh, using that medicine sparingly. And here at Prairie View, we've actually seen a decrease in the amount of money that we've spent on uh, dewormer annually uh, by using this method. But we've also maintained our, our herd numbers as well. Mm-hmm. And we have a closed herd, so it's not like we're buying anything in. Um, and we've seen a lot of uh, lower, lower death loss due to parasites using this method. Right. So it kind of allows for a natural immunity to build up within the herd over time. Right. Yeah. And a lot of times we, as I always make a distinction between show goats and commercial goats. Um, Show goats, a lot of um, shows just don't want any parasites. They don't, they don't want the, when I do my parasite, I look at the, the fecal egg count. I don't want to see any parasites. Whereas naturally, just like humans, you know, we have natural bacteria in our bodies. Same thing with goats. It would be natural that they would have some parasite eggs. It's when it gets to the point that it is um, causing them health issues that we don't want. So um, a lot of times within some herds, I will allow, you know, it, it doesn't cause me some alarm to see some parasite eggs. I just know I have to monitor uh, my animals to make sure that they stay healthy and they, you know, tolerate uh, what's being done, or that means I need to rotate my pastures. It's right. letting me know that they're picking up eggs. So, all right, they're, they've probably eaten too low to the ground. You know, parasites live in the bottom uh, about three inches, three to four inches of grass. So if I can stop them from eating that low by rotating my pasture, they'll shed what they have and they won't pick up anymore. And that's kind of a natural way that you can, uh, you know, help them manage the parasites naturally without you having to always have a chemical intervention. Yeah, and it's great that you put on your own programs and uh, workshops for stuff like this, because as a new landowner, you know, they go in with nothing and it helps to just have some of that basic information about, you know, the a, but one of the best management practices you can have is to practice rotational grazing and pay attention to the seasons and stuff like that. Absolutely. And get with your NRCS office. You know, you can always come to uh, us at Prairie View and and we'll help you get in touch with your NRCS office um, to get you that management plan together. 
um, and also work with you on some uh, goat management strategies that you may be able to implement within your area. So just like I mentioned before, we're having this program on the 4th. Um, we have kind of a specific agenda, but that's also an opportunity for you to talk to our researchers and our experts about ways that you can, um, some, some other practices that you can implement within your operation. You know, mm -hmm. so this is your opportunity to, to speak to the professionals. Right, and looking at the long term, um, what do you hope the goat industry will look like in 10 years? Wow. Oh, that's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> um, in 10 years, I would love to see um, an expansion of the goat, um, of goat genetics. So people really focusing on um, an outcome or an output that they would want to see. That's not necessarily solely just a look, but also for um, production efficiency. I would really like to see um, a lot more uh, a lot more research into uh, dewormer options. And mm -hmm. I'd also like to see the goat industry be um, acknowledged on a larger level. Right now, a lot of goat medicines are not available um, or they're not labeled for goats. So a lot of the medicines that we have to use are extra label, meaning they have to be um, the, the vet has to tell you how to use it and what amount to use um, just because there's not a lot of research being done on goats, even though goat meat is consumed uh, worldwide on a large scale. Um, it's just in the U.S. and, and we don't have enough research money. Um, I would say we don't have a lot of eyes on the goat industry like we do the beef or the pork industry. Mm -hmm. um, I would like to see us get stronger and have be a lot more vocal um, with with uh, within our industry to where we can vouch for more research to get better dewormers, get better medical care for our goats and also to um, to better advocate for our producers. We are a livestock industry, much like beef and pork, uh, and we should be getting uh, equal access to research funds, research dollars and also um, just more education in general surrounding goat management and goat production. So expansion in a lot of ways. I think that can happen though. I think it can happen too. I feel very yes. hopeful, especially with the work you guys are doing out there and the research that you've been conducting. Oh, I appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. Um, like so I've so done, I, I haven't done any of the research. <laughs> I, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. No, no, y'all are, y'all are doing some great work out there. And, um, I got one final question for you today, just to kind of sure. wrap it all up. And um, so what makes you feel inspired in your job every day? Oh, another good question. Um, the people. Man, the, the producers that we serve are some of the best people that I've ever met. And working within Extension, I have the best team that I think I could work with. Everybody understands the needs of the people and just that's our goal is to, to be of service. And that's kind of all I've ever wanted out of a job was to be able to help somebody. So every day that I hear I've made somebody reconsider something or I've helped them out or I've been able to um, provide them information that 
they didn't previously have where they just feel like they can go out and be better and do better in their operations. That's what I'm here for. Like, um, that's that's just my passion in this job. I've been working in extension since 2012. It's my only career. And I don't see myself leaving just because the amount of um, joy that I get from being able to interact with people on a personal level is it's unquantifiable. Mm-hmm. It's, it's great. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Where can people um, find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Sure. You can find um, you can find me on I manage our Facebook page. So if you go to uh, PVAMU Agriculture and Natural Resources on Facebook, you can follow us, hit that follow button or you can uh, find all of our programming. If you go to uh, the Prairie View A&M website for a cooperative extension, it's a long link. So uh, I'll have her added into the podcast description so that you can reach us. And um, all of our events are posted there. We have um, we don't just deal with goats. Again, we deal with uh, different areas of extension as well. We have agriculture and natural resources for youth development. But specifically in the ag unit, we have a forester on staff. We have an urban horticulturalist. We have an entomologist, a natural resource specialist. Um, and a wildlife management specialist who deals with feral swine uh, management and eradication. So um, there's a plethora of educational opportunities that you can tap into on our website. So thank you for this opportunity, Shannon, for of course um, extending this invitation. It's been great. I love talking to you. I love talking with you as well. And uh, thank thank you as well for coming on the podcast and. No, just telling me about all the interesting work that you're doing. Sure, no problem. Invite me back next time. We'll do one. All right, I'm down. <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> all right, bye bye. Bye bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Homegrown Podcast, provided by the Harris County Agri Lake Extension Horticulture Department. If you have any questions or need information on the Homegrown series or Agri Lake Extension programs, please visit our website at harris.agrilife.org.